want to turn our attention to God's Word. And this morning, we are in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. This morning, we bring to a close our series through this book. We want to do so by looking at the last few verses. So I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 9. The Apostle Paul tells Titus, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Paul is bringing to a close this letter to Titus, and as he does so, he's laying down some basis, basic instructions for him to follow. And some of these things look uh, really like odds and ends, like personal little things that uh, would be more meaningful, more meaningful for them in that day. And yet, if we pause and reflect on these things, as we're going to do in a few minutes, what we see is, in fact, the real-world way in which Paul viewed gospel ministry and how he encouraged it to be furthered among God's people. As we have said and we have seen from the Scriptures before, gospel ministry, Christian ministry, is not simply meant for pastors, but rather all of God's people are to be engaged in gospel ministry that is a kind of intentional lifestyle service that involves not only the the doing of good deeds, but primarily the speaking of God's Word to other people. So gospel ministry can be something as obvious as starting or pastoring a church, but it could be something as simple as sharing the gospel with a neighbor or visiting a sick church member in the hospital. As Paul says in Colossians, the goal of this ministry is to move people further into maturity in Christ. That might mean helping them across the line from being lost and not part of the church into faith in Christ and part of his kingdom. Or it might simply be helping someone grow into the image of Christ who is already a believer. All of this happens if we are prayerfully speaking God's word to one another. And in these final verses, Paul builds on everything that he has touched on in this letter. And he shows how gospel ministry can be furthered. In other words, how it can be promoted and advanced among God's people and into the world. Paul never envisioned a Christian who never did anything. Instead, he envisions Christians investing in the lives of other Christians who in turn invest in the lives of others as well. In other words, ministry is meant to keep going. As God's people, we are not meant to be a kind of spiritual dead end or spiritual cul-de-sac where you just kind of drive in and then everything stops. There's nowhere to go. We are meant to rather be a funnel. As God continues to pour His grace and His truth into us, it is supposed to, to, to come back out as we minister to others. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we, how do we stay encouraged to do that? How do we stay focused in that? And this morning, Paul answers that question. In fact, that's how he has been really, uh, what he has been saying throughout this entire letter. But here we see five simple things that we can do to further gospel ministry in ourselves and in our church. 
So the first thing that we want to, to see, the first thing that we want to be doing is this. <coughs> we need to stay focused on the right theology. We need to stay focused on the right theology. Paul begins this ending of this section, or this letter rather, by telling Titus to avoid certain doctrinal debates and false theology. This is what he says in verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Now what are these things? Well, foolish controversies, I think he has in mind, are speculations and questions that have to do with uh, side and tangential issues related to the Christian faith about which we have no clear, even sometimes implied, biblical instruction. They have no real relevance to the Christian faith and whether or not someone grows in Christ. They are speculations and controversies. Paul calls them foolish because he wants to highlight the lack of substance in these things. So whether it's about debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pen or what political party Jesus would be a part of, Paul says, avoid these things because they're foolish controversies. They have nothing to do with the focus about which we are to be. Where the Bible is silent, we should be silent, not spending countless hours in such foolishness. As we've seen before, even in this letter, talk about genealogies refers to far-fetched allegorical interpretations of the list of of people's names we find in the Old Testament. As uh, many would try to attempt to trace their Jewish genealogy into the Old Testament. Think about even today, how much do people enjoy being related to famous people, right? Even if they're not really related to famous people, they just claim to be. How much more uh, cool would it have been to be related to a biblical saint? To be able to say, oh yeah, direct line from Joseph or from Nehemiah or or, or one of these people. The problem though is that these things are completely speculative. And in fact it was an exercise in which they desired not just to build themselves up in the eyes of others, but to actually earn favor with God. Believing that somehow the line of descent from one man to another is more blessed. One only needs to spend a few minutes looking through some of the, the, the genealogies that have some of the more famous people in there to see that God doesn't always work that way. In fact, even the lives of people like David, he seems to intentionally delight in stepping in and removing his hand of blessing, revealing that grace does not run in the genes, that God's favor and blessing does not always follow the family line. Therefore, such things not only are pride, but they are vain in their intentionality. Finally, when Paul speaks about dissensions and quarrels about the law, he is referring to the misuse of the law of Moses that sparks division and fighting among God's people. Through clever but misguided interpretations, false teachers, and sometimes even well-meaning lay people, presume to have a means for achieving righteousness before God. In other words, if we can figure out from the law what we are to do and how the, what the implications of that are for so many other things, then we know how to achieve righteousness with God. And furthermore, we're going to tell you what you have to do to achieve righteousness with God. But what does Paul say about these things? He says, avoid them, for they are unprofitable and they are worthless. In other words, Paul is saying, don't fight over worthless things. Don't fight over things that are going to have no value and no profit for you or for the church. Now, in saying that, he's not saying don't ever debate theology. Don't ever, in in fact, get passionate about the truth of God's word. Again, just read the Bible. What do we see? We see Jesus sometimes getting very agitated, even angry with the Pharisees, right? 
who themselves were seeking to earn righteousness with God by their good works, works that God himself had not prescribed, and seeking to lay that burden on others. And Jesus said, you guys are a, a brood of vipers. You are whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but you are dead and decaying on the inside. You don't know God. You're not true sons of Abraham. That's strong words for the Pharisees of that day. Likewise, Paul was not afraid to go after a similar group, the Judaizers, but also the Apostle Peter, to get in his face and say, you are wrong. When did they do these things, though? When it was matters of first importance, namely when it came down to the gospel itself, how a person is made right with God. And so the point that Paul is making here is not that there should never be quarreling, that there should never be division. The question is, what is the motivation? Why are you doing it? It is about stupid and foolish and empty controversies that on the very outside fringes of what it means to be a Christian and only sometimes related to those things? Or is it about the nucleus, the very center and core and power of the Christian life, namely the person and work of Jesus? It is over those kinds of important things that we may have to divide, that we can rightly quarrel. The 4th century historian Eusebius tells us that shortly after the apostles died, there was, in fact, all manner of false teachers that rose up within the church, and through deceitful means they arrogantly derided God's word and advanced their own ideas. They decided that they would say, okay, the apostles are dead. The authority is gone. We will fill that power vacuum, not just with teaching God's word and the apostolic doctrine, the right theology, but we will advance our own ideas about who Christ is. And, of course, the church put a stop to that. And the point here that I'm trying to make is even, even uh, four centuries later when that kind of thing is still going on, it happened right after the early church. And Paul tells Titus, it's going on in your day. It's happening now. These false teachers don't just spring up from nowhere. There is always the threat of false teaching because that is one of Satan's favorite means to undermine the church and its ministry. And like Titus, we must avoid such teaching and stay focused on the right theology of Scripture, namely the, the truth that, that scatters like light from the crystal that is uh, the gospel itself, that diamond, that jewel that stands at the center of all right theology. Insofar as theology is connected to that truth about Christ coming into this world and giving his life for his people, that we might be made right with God, not by works but by grace we will know the importance of the issue of which we are debating. We are to stay focused on the right theology. Secondly, we are to stay partnered with the right people. We are to stay partnered with the right people. Paul says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is, person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. One who stirs up division is, isn't simply one with whom you disagree. There are going to be lots of people in this world, good people, well-meaning people, nice people, smart people, and you will disagree with them. And sometimes you're going to be wrong, and they're going to be right. But the point is not simply, oh, that person doesn't agree with me, they're gone. No, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the kind of person who is constantly stirring the pot. They are constantly looking for any little wedge in which to create division. If there's a fight in the church, that person is always at the center of it, egging it on and getting people to go at one another. 
the, the verbal form of the word here used to describe what this person does means having the power of choice or having a self-chosen part. It eventually be, became used of one who was a heretic, one who willfully rejected the apostolic faith. The, the point here is that the person is one who is unwilling to be taught. They have their opinions, and they're not going to change. You're not going to convince them to change, and they are always going to seek to break apart God's people in order to advance their own ideas. They have a high view of themselves, pushing that view on others, even to the point of dividing the church. He or she isn't concerned for the damage that is done, but only for themselves. And Paul says when that kind of person is, is appearing in your church, warn them. Confront them about what they're doing. He doesn't mean threaten them, but admonish them. It's the word that we get for the movement in Christian counseling known for nuthetic counseling. It's about warning the person about their actions and their attitude by Scripture, calling that person to repent and to look to Christ in faith and live differently in light of God's direction. Nevertheless, if that person continues, Paul says, warn him a second time. Admonish him. Look at what you're doing. Look at the damage that you're doing. Look at the pride that's in your heart. Turn away from these things. Turn away from these things and trust and rest in the grace that God has provided. But if the individual still doesn't heed the call to repent, then we have, he says, we are to have nothing more to do with him. This is the final step of church discipline where the person is removed from the fellowship of God's people and treated as an unbeliever. And doing something like that, frankly, is not something we ever relish. But sometimes, as Paul says here, it is necessary to preserve the body. It is better that one person be sent out from among you and not treated as a believer if it means the whole body is going to be healthy. What Paul says here isn't a suggestion. It's a command. It's not, here's a good idea, you should do this. He's instructing Titus, the leader of the churches in Crete, and therefore by implication, every leader of every church, of every church that claims to be a Christian church, this is how you treat such a person. And Paul tries to encourage us in this by reminding us that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The idea of being warped means that they are twisted in their purpose in life. They are not ultimately condemned by the church. They have been condemned already by their actions under God. And the church is simply recognizing that they're not living like a believer, therefore we shouldn't treat them like one. When we see instructions like this, we should remember how important unity is to be among God's people. God tells us over and over and over again that we are to be together. We are to be united. We are to be of one mind and one heart and one purpose. Why is unity so important? Well, the Bible gives at least three reasons. First of all, the love and the fellowship that we should have for one another is meant to reflect the love and the fellowship of God himself, existing eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. If we are imitating God in our love for one another, then we are glorifying him with our lives. We are pointing to him and honoring him by following his example. Secondly, unity and love and fellowship around the gospel helps to build up the church who wants to go to a church where you've got to put your helmet on and, and, and your, uh, get your shield and get ready for a fight every time you walk in the door? I don't want to be in a church like that. That doesn't build anybody up. That doesn't advance Christ's kingdom. No, if we are together, unified in love and in fellowship with one another, if we are, if we are on the same page and knowing what is essential for, for Christian belief, 
we're going to be a mutual encouragement to one another. Knowing we're all on the same team. We're all in the same fight. We're all moving in the same direction. So when someone falls, we reach down and we help pick them back up. Finally, following the example of God in unity and love and fellowship as a witness to the world who looks on marveling at the love shown among us. There are some places, there are some people that though we, you know, we joke about it sometimes, but I guarantee you, apart from the gospel, they would not be your friend because you, you root for their sports team's arch rival, right? It, it, it is amazing to people. We have state fans and Michigan fans in the same church. Can you imagine? That is the grace of a sovereign God, my friends. That's all it is. But you think about, we have a, a, a wide diversity of people here. We have blue collar, we have white collar, we have, we have young, we have old, we have people from all of the tri-cities, and yet we come together and we can pull off something like Rock the Block where uh, virtually three-quarters of the church is involved in this massive outreach event, and we get along and we like each other and we serve each other. What does that say to the world who looks at us and says, how do you have unity amidst this diversity? We say it's because of the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ. All of this directs us to reflect on then who are we partnering with? Not just as a church, but as individuals. Who are we partnering with, with for life as well as for ministry? In other words, who are you hanging around with? Who are you investing your life in? And why are you doing that? Are you together with people who are wrapped up in all kinds of speculative teaching, arguing and disrupting the church? Someone who's always ready for a fight? Is that your best friend? Or are you together with those who love the truth of God's word and seek the unity that God desires among his people? Moreover, are you even seeking to be partnered with God's people at all? If your involvement at this church or any other church, if your involvement with, with God's people begins and ends on Sunday morning, you're missing it. You're missing it. Not only is your life failing to live up to the commands and the example of the Bible about the community God calls us to be, but you're depriving yourself of the very grace that God desires to pour into your life. For your good, he says, involve yourself, interlink, combine organically into one body with my people. This leads us to the next priority we see from our passage, that we should stay burdened with the right concern. That we should stay burdened with the right concern. Look at verse 12. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. That's an important verse in this letter. Did you catch why? Maybe not. I'll explain it to you. I mean, let's be honest. If we're just reading through that, that seems like an incredibly simple and unimportant verse. This is just Paul's travel plans, right? But what we see is actually an example of the burden that Paul had for the people of God. We see the concern that he had to care for pastorally, to shepherd the church. To begin with, he's saying he wants Titus to come and be with him in the city of Nicopolis. He plans to spend the winter there involved in ministry, and he wants Titus to join him. Now, based on what he says in his other letters, I think we can safely assume that Paul wants to see Titus for two reasons. First, he wants to encourage, he encourage Titus. You know, Paul has his ministry team. He has his group of workers, and he will often uh, spin them out into, into other fields of service. But you notice, what does he do? He writes to them. And he continues to give them instructions and, and say, I'm praying for you. Be encouraged. Stay strong. You know, one of the things that not many people know about the great theologian reformer John Calvin is that he trained probably about 2,000 church planters. 
these guys when it was, it was illegal to be a Protestant. Uh, you, you would literally be killed for not being a Catholic. They would flee their countries and they'd go to Geneva and they would sit under his teaching. He preached. They had, they had morning service before work. Uh, the, the, the church would come together and they would hear a sermon and go through a simple service uh, every day. And he would preach two weeks straight, then he'd have a week off. And he'd preach two weeks straight. And then in the afternoons, he would do theology. In the evenings, he would do theology lectures. And these guys would sit under his teaching. They would see how he ran the church. They would hear the gospel unfolded from all the scriptures. They would say, i got to go back. i, I got to go back to my country because they're starving from a lack of the gospel. And so, he, so, so he, would, he would train them up, and then he would send them back off. And you know what he would do? He would only pray for them, but he would write them letters many of whom he knew would never come back. They would be martyred for the faith. And yet he would write to them, and he would encourage them, and he would counsel them. And he didn't have to do that. He was in a massive city center church. He had so many things going. He's writing commentaries left, right, and center, and preaching sermons every day. How do you, how do you write a sermon every day for, for two weeks straight? Uh, that's, uh, that's not me. I'll tell you that right now. And yet here is Calvin writing to, at any given time, hundreds of guys all over Europe encouraging them, stay steady, fix your eyes on Jesus, proclaim the gospel, even if it means death. That's the kind of attitude that, that Paul had towards his workers. He wants to be able to see Titus face to face. He wants to be able to encourage him. But more than that, he wants to be encouraged. Paul wants to be encouraged. He knows Titus is a good man. He is useful for ministry. I want him on this mission. I want him with me. Furthermore, just having him with me, he is a good friend, and the fellowship will be mutually encouraging. I will be strengthened, Paul says. The great apostle, he needs encouragement. He needs to be strengthened. He says, Titus is the guy who will, who will do that for me. But notice, Paul's desire for fellowship and encouragement with Titus doesn't override his concern for the larger people of God. Paul's whole life has been given over to building and encouraging the body of Christ for the glory of Christ. This is the best concern, the right concern that burdened the Apostle Paul. And that's what we see here. Notice again closely the language of verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me. Do you see the concern here? It's only after Paul's people arrive in Crete that he wants Titus to leave. He's he's telling Titus, I want you to come, but you wait until they come to you. That's what he's saying. I'm going to send some brothers who are going to work with the elders and care for the people and protect the church. Don't leave until they get there. I don't want the church unprotected. What happens if the letter comes and and Titus says, oh, I know Paul's going to send these guys. And then what happens if they don't don't make it? I mean, travel was not like, you know, hopping in your car and zooming down I-75 back in in the first century. Okay? Sometimes it was on foot, hundreds of miles. You got robbers, you got storms, you kind of they could die en route. I mean, it's a real, real possibility. And suddenly, here's this church with no supervision, with no care, with no pastoral oversight. Paul wants Titus with himself at Nicopolis, but he can't just think of himself. He is concerned for the church. And from what we know in this letter, he knows the church in Crete is particularly vulnerable. They've been disrupted from the inside with false teachers. They've got an incredibly pagan, sinfully, rampantly so, culture bearing down from the inside. And he wants to ensure that they are taken care of. He wants to ensure that they're encouraged, they're corrected, they're taught, they're protected. All of these things. Loved ones, we're no different. We're no different. We need one another. 
We need people who are encouraging us and even inspiring us to love and to good works, who are calling us to live the Christian life faithfully. We need people who are concerned for us and show it by the care they give to us. And we need to be concerned for them. We need to feel the burden of concern for the church just as Paul did, just as Jesus did. Remember what he told Peter when he restored him after the resurrection? He says, if you love me, feed my sheep. He says, Peter, on one level, he knows, he knows Peter's repentant. He, he knows that he loves him. He knows all that he's going to accomplish in the next 30-some years. But he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, understand the way that I will know, the way that you will really know that you love me, is if you tend to my people, is if you care for my sheep, if you protect and shepherd and love my church. Is that what we do? You know, in, in some ways it's, it's easy when the crisis time comes. Somebody goes into the hospital or gets sick, and you go and you make a visit and you pray for them, and somebody takes some food over there, and that, that's good. That person is encouraged. You feel good for being able to, to serve, You're actually living the way God designed, but then the crisis is over, and what happens? Life can kind of get back to normal. You don't think about that person for weeks or months. You don't ever pray for them. You don't ever call them. You don't ever visit them. You don't ever send them a note. You don't spend time seeking them out in the hallway at church to shake their hand. What does, what does your normal schedule look like in terms of your love and your care and your concern for God's people? If we were to look at your bank account, would it reflect a love and concern for God's people? If we looked at your Facebook feed, would it reflect a love and concern for God's people? When you're planning your month and your week and your days in terms of how you're going to spend your time, whether it's at school or in front of the television or hobbies or whatever it is, are God's people the first or the last to go on your ledger of how you're going to keep account of them? Are they the first priority or the last priority for how you're going to invest in the week? Is it, I've put in everything that I'm going to do and I want to do and I'm happy to do. I've got a little bit of leftover time. Maybe I'll get together with somebody. Maybe I'll send them an email. Maybe I'll give them a call. Or maybe not. Are we burdened with the care for God's people? We understand that the church is called to be more than a club. God wants the people in the chairs around you to be your closest friends. He wants you to know their struggles and for them to know yours. He expects that you will be helping them mature in Christ and that they will be helping you mature in Christ. And if any of that's going to happen, we frankly have to stop looking outside of God's word and the church for our standard of what is normal. Because that's what we do. We look at the world and we think, if I, if I really commit that, that much to God's people, that's going to be odd. That's going to look strange. That's not what we do in this country, so I'm not going to do it. Now, we don't verbalize that. We don't type that into our journal at night. But th that's the mindset that we have. And, and if we have any hope of being a New Testament church, if we have any hope of actually displaying the kind of love and compassion and care that God calls us to, invites us to, then we have to stop that immediately. We have to look to something like, like a letter to Titus or the book of Acts and say, what is normal in God's mind? What's, what are the normal expectations? Because the reality is, the people that are sitting around you in these chairs, in heaven or hell, they will exist for eternity. 
So I, I'm, not, I'm not saying give up all entertainment and give up all frivolous things or, or, or having fun. I was just telling a, a, a guy the other day, I saw a commercial for this movie, and you and I got to go see that movie together. That's going to be hilarious. We have to, we have to go see it together. But you know what? Here's a guy also who's helping me uh, edit books and, and work on sermons and, and go here and there and the other. We're involved in ministry at the same time. So it's not a matter of an either or. The question that we need to ask, though, is, is always this. Before we do anything, what eternal difference is this going to make? Sometimes it's going to be no. None. I go to the movie and hang out with a guy, no eternal difference as far as I can see. We're literally putting our brains in neutral and laughing at silly jokes and physical comedy. Guys getting beat up who shouldn't be getting beat up, right? The uh, school teacher going as an MMA wrestler to earn money for the school. I mean, come on, that's like comedy gold, right? No eternal value. But here's the point. If on Monday you say, I want to do this, this, and this, no eternal value. And on Tuesday, I'm going to do this, this, and this, no eternal value. And on Wednesday, I'm going to do this, this, and this, no eternal value. And on Thursday, and on Friday, and on Saturday, and week after week, you're doing all these things, and you're coming back, no eternal value, no investment for the kingdom, no difference for the church whatsoever. You've got a problem. I've got a problem. It shows that we're not rightly oriented with God because we're not rightly oriented with his people. The Apostle John was very clear. Don't you dare say you love God whom you've never seen if you don't love God's people whom you have seen. In other words, if you're not caring for God's sheep, if you're not loving them and investing with them, partnering them with, in, with, with ministry and concern for their growth, then don't walk around with this big head thinking, man, I really love God. I'm really doing well spiritually. You're, you're in the pit. Because a proper, a proper expression of love for God is love for neighbor. That goes all the way back to the beginning. How we relate to God will be seen how we relate to other people. Sometimes we frankly just have to say no to things that we like to do that aren't aren't even sinful. But they're no investment in the kingdom. And an investment needs to be made. Sometimes we have to say no to our kids and things they want to do. Again, I'm not saying that we become killjoys. We become the stereotypical Puritan wearing dark clothes and walking around with a dour look on our face? No, no, no. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm simply saying is, do we, do we care for God's people? Are we burdened with the right concern for the church? Fourth, if we are to advance God's kingdom, we need to be diligent in the right work. We need to stay diligent in the right work. Pastor Legan Duncan once talked about being in a lecture at the opening of the Free Church College in Edinburgh several years ago. He says that the lecture was given by one of the professors. And in the midst, of the, the midst of the lecture, he began describing this famous liberal theologian who had denied uh, virtually all evangelical truth. If, if, it was, if it was at all right Christian theology, he had just about denied it. And the professor was arguing against this liberal's teaching. And he said, the first thing that's bad about this teaching is that it rejects the historic creeds and confessions of the church. And he went through this long explanation about how his teaching contradicted all of the, uh, all of the, the, the creeds and confessions that the Christian church has, has put together throughout the ages. Then he said, the second thing that's bad about this teaching is that it contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture and therefore undermines the authority of Scripture in the church. It doesn't just line up with the creeds. It doesn't even line up with Scripture plainly taught. And then he said, the third thing about this teaching that's bad is that it undermines the church's understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible's teaching about who he is and what he has done, it contradicts the gospel. This is why this guy's teaching is no good. It doesn't build up Christ. It devalues him and his glory. 
But they came to the fourth point. And he says, here's the worst thing of all. It's unpastoral. It undermines the Christian life and people. And Legan Duncan says that was the climax of the debate. Everything was leading up to that. He was saying the fundamental thing wrong with this false teaching is that it did not produce fruit in the Christian life. And he said you cannot produce fruit with falsehood. Isn't that what Paul's been saying the whole time in this letter? I mean, again and again and again, he's saying right behavior from right belief. You get your theology right, you're going to get your practice right. False teachers are evident in part because of their lack of love and good works. Isn't that what he said? Those who are believers should give evidence to their faith by their good works. And look at what he says. Do your, verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. What is he saying? He's saying do good works. Apollos, we've met before in Acts and 1 Corinthians, he was a skilled preacher and teacher in the early church who proclaimed and defended the gospel, especially among the Jews. Zenos the lawyer we've never heard of before. He's the only time he's ever mentioned is right here. Given his name, he was likely a Roman lawyer and would have been an expert in the laws pertaining to a city or region. Together, these two guys brought the letter to Titus, likely along with some encouragement and help for him in his ministry. And Paul says, in turn, make sure you help these guys out. Make sure that you provide for them. They're staying there for a while in Crete, but that's not, their, that, that's not it. They're going on in their mission to advance the church. These guys are missionaries. The apostles' expectation is that the church would care for them. What does he say? They should lack nothing when they leave. They should have rested bodies. They should have full bellies. They should have encouraged hearts. And they should have uh, bulging wallets. That's how you send off missionaries. See that they lack nothing. Why? Because that's the nature of the church. That's, that's the kind of work that you do. In the, in the next verse, Paul says, that's just one example. Verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves. Devote themselves. That means not the optional extra on the car. It's part and parcel of what we do. Devote ourselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. This morning we read about the fruitful Christian life. Paul says, it's not there without good works. You can't say, I'm having an amazing time with God. I see much production of fruit. See, I don't, I don't, where's the good works? Oh, I don't do any of that. Not fruitful then. Not fruitful. The expectation is that the people of God, not just for themselves, that's the example here, but that the message that they bring should provoke within them the desire to do good in society. Sometimes, not even when it benefits the church. So you have, you have people like Newton and Wilberforce in England, and, and they're reading the Bible. What do they say? Slavery should end. Why? Because everyone's made in God's image. And the treatment they're receiving does not match their status as image bearers. Now, William Wilberforce only wrote one book in his whole life. You know what it was on? The, impl- the implications of justification by faith. What did that lead him to do? In slavery. Right theology, the gospel of Christ, led him to good works. Now, I'm not saying that all of us need to go into politics and and find some cause and and seek to abolish it over decades of of life. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is, where does your heart lie? Is it it stingy and wanting to keep all of your money and your resources because, well, we we might need it, there might be problems, or, 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 or do you freely give to those who are in need? Do you freely display the love of Christ to those who, who don't deserve it? Finally, if we're going to advance 
gospel ministry, then we need to stay encouraged with the right motivation. We need to stay encouraged with the right motivation. Paul closes out this letter first by exchanging greetings with Titus and those at the church in Crete. All who are with me send greetings to you. Those or Greet those who love us in the faith. Again, it is they're seeking to encourage and build one another up. But he ends with these final words, grace be with you all. As we have seen from the opening verses, grace has been an important part of this letter. Grace is God's unearned blessing and favor. But sometimes we fail to get grace. That is not that we fail to get it in the terms of receiving it. We fail to get it in terms of understanding it. We don't actually understand how grace operates, and therefore we fall into one of two ditches of misunderstanding and false living. The first ditch is one of spiritual and ministerial laziness. We know of grace, we love grace, but it's a cheap grace that we, that we know and embrace. It doesn't have much value because our understanding of it allows us to do just about anything that we want. Any pushback on our thinking, our lifestyle, or anything else, saying maybe that's not right, is just shrugged off with a somewhat superior attitude in the reasoning. It's all about grace, man. It's all about grace. Thus, grace becomes the motivation to shrug off responsibility and sacrifice. That's, that's one ditch. It's the ditch of indifference and apathy. But the second ditch is one of self-sufficiency and independence. Here we, we appreciate the grace that brought us to Christ. We understand what that means in a real sense, but now we're ready to go it alone. God's given us the help up that we need, but now we're ready to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and get going under our own steam. I've, I've got this, God. Those other people out there need your help, but I've got this. I can live the Christian life on my own without your help. We're willing to give up and to sacrifice, and eventually we burn out in ministry because we're trying to achieve a righteousness of our own. Both ditches are there because we don't understand the gospel of grace. In the first case, we don't understand that it is a costly grace that has been given. It's costly because it costs Christ his very life. Our salvation of, is of inestimable value because it was purchased at the infinite price of the life of the Son of God. So Peter can remind the Christians in Ephesus and motivate them. Be holy in all your conduct. Why? Knowing you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Peter says, next to Christ's death, gold and silver look like garbage. When we grasp the worth of grace, we will not be apathetic. We will be thankful. We won't be indifferent, but energized to love and to good works. The second ditch fails to understand grace is an ongoing gift. We understand that God gets us in, but now we think it's up to us. If we are simply willing to work hard, then we will accomplish something. And in the process, we often follow the trap of legalism or self-loathing for sin. Because we realize over and over and over again that we simply aren't good enough. So we either think we've attained it, we're doing great, I've been holy and good and God will love me now. Or like Luther, we drive ourselves nearly insane trying to live up to the standard of a holy God, which we can never do. The solution to the problem of the first ditch is the same as the solution to the problem of the second ditch. Look to Christ. See there the man who was God in the flesh, perfect from before the world was made, dying for your sin. See and believe that all of God's wrath toward your sin was satisfied by Christ. When we rightly understand grace, 
and we will find the right motivation to love and serve and sacrifice and be holy as we further the gospel among God's people into the world. John Wesley once said, If I had 300 men who feared nothing but God, hated nothing but sin, and were determined to know nothing among men but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, I would set the world on fire. I think he was probably right. Look what God did with 12 men in the New Testament. But I look around this room, and there's not 300, but I wonder, what if we just had 50? What if we had 50 people who feared God, who hated sin, who determined to know Christ and Him crucified and nothing else? What if we had 50 people who did that by staying focused on the right theology, who stayed partner with the right people, who stayed burdened with the right concern, who stayed diligent in the right work and stayed encouraged with the right, right motivation? Could we set the Tri-Cities on fire for Christ? That is a question that burns in our minds and our hearts, and I trust it is one that you will answer in time. That, Father, even through this message and through the ongoing instruction in the Word, God, both from the pulpit and in our community groups and in our classes and in our own reading, that, God, you will continue to shape us and to mold us, that, God, you will awaken us to our sin and our deficiencies, and God, you will do that not to discourage us and to, uh, to drive us to despair, but to, to come again to your grace purchased for us by Christ, a grace that you offer day after day after day until we see you face to face. God, may we live by grace that we may reveal your grace to one another and to this world. And in doing so, God, may we... God, may we be the people that you want us to be, the people that we could be. Forgive us where we fail, God. Encourage us to look to Christ.